who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. What does feminism mean to you? During Women's History Month, come explore feminism and how it's playing out in real life with season two of Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I'll use my background in journalism to dive into topics that matter to women today, from divorce to call-out culture to masculinity to girls' confidence. Season two of Thread the Needle finds the meeting place between feminist ideals and the realities of women's lives. Listen to Thread the Needle wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Anne Foster, and this is part two of our discussion of Dowager Empress Sushi, which, I mean, welcome if you didn't hear part one. Part one really establishes a lot of stuff of what's going on, but if you just want to jump right into part two, welcome back. But I am going to do a little petite recap so we all remember where we left off before. Also, big shout outs to my references for this episode. The really main one is this book by Zheng Chang. I'll put the link to it in the show notes, but Zheng Chang with this wonderful, very expansive, much needed biography of Sushi. And honestly, when I was reading it, I was, we're going to get to numerous parts of the story where you're like, okay, and that's the end. It's like, oh, it's not. Like, I think everything I talked about in last week's episode was something like the first two chapters of this, like, I don't know, 500 page book. This story is unrelenting and... I'm going to do my best to explain to you the part that I find most interesting, the part that I think you'll find most interesting, what we're here for, which is the messy drama of the life of this tits out woman. There's a lot of war related things going on. There's a lot of rebellion related things going on. I'm going to touch on those when they kind of need to be talked about. But if we were getting into the minutia of all the stuff that happened in the background of this woman's life, this would be a 65 part miniseries. And a lot of it would be discussion of war and battles, and that's just not what any of us are here for. Anyway, to get the full picture of her whole life, the book by Zheng Chang, it is called Empress Dowager Sushi, the Concubine Who Launched Modern China. And if you want to really like dive into the minutia of all of this, there's an audiobook of it too, so you can listen to it. I also got some information from the Encyclopedia of Women's Biography, which is this multi- volume work. They have it at the local public library. Maybe it's at your local public library. Whenever I'm in doubt, this book, 
like whoever I'm looking at, whether it's someone like Sushi, where there's lots of information about her elsewhere, or if it's like Ronnie Ditta or whatever, like there's always at least a couple paragraphs in this, this resource, like thank God. I also got some background stuff from Britannica.com and I'm going to read to you now from an article I found on Smithsonian.com by Amanda Foreman, which talks about foot binding, which we talked about a bit in the last episode. And we're going to talk about in this episode as well, but just this is some context that I found really useful to understand because it also just further helps to contextualize what Sushi and her bestie, Sa'an, were doing given the culture in which they live, but also kind of the political meaning of why this is being done to women. So foot binding. So the indigenous people of China in the first place were the Han people who were invaded by lots of different people, including Genghis Khan and the Mongols in 1279. And people on the Patreon will know because I've done an episode about Genghis Khan there. Anyway, so the Han people is an ethnic or a cultural group who, this is kind of one of the things that helped them sort of represent their identity, even though they kept being taken over by other groups, like Sushi and Sa'an were from the Manchu, from Manchuria. The foot binding, which where you just like, I won't get into it. I didn't want to read about it too much myself. I'm a very squeamish person about, you know, body things. But effectively, like you take a little baby girl from the time they're little and you just like break their feet and you wrap them up really tight. So they grow in this really small way that makes it really hard to walk and is awful. Part of this was like an ethnic pride thing, according to this article from Smithsonian. So like the Manchu people, like when they came, took over and they were the Qing dynasty. So in the 17th century, they tried to ban this thing, but not because, not strictly because it was just like a horrible, grotesque thing to do, but also because it symbolized this Han pride and the Manchus wanted to, you know, people to not have that sense of ethnic pride because that was maybe a challenge to them. Anyway, so it became a point of difference between the Han and the rest of the world. So we talked in last time's episode, and also we got into this in the Queen Min episode where we we're looking at Joseon era Korea the whole thing about Confucianism. So during the advent of foot binding, so this was like thousands or not hundreds of years before Sushi's whole story. So there there was this kind of thing called Neo-Confucianism, which stressed the indivisibility of social harmony, moral orthodoxy, and ritualized behavior. So for women, Neo-Confucianism placed extra emphasis on chastity, obedience, and diligence. A good wife should have no desire other than to serve her husband, no ambition other than to produce a son, and no interest beyond subjugating herself to her husband's family. So the act of footbinding, the pain involved and the physical limitations it created became a woman's daily demonstration of her commitment to these Confucian values. So Sushi, who came from the Manchu ethnic group, she never did footbinding. Although because, so if you can imagine people who have these little tiny broken feet they would walk in these kind of like really small, awkward steps. And so just kind of knowing that, the Manchu nobility, I guess, like Sushi, they would walk on these really tall sort of platform shoes that would mimic the same sort of walk that people with the foot binding would have. So they kind of, I don't know, just to blend in or something. Anyway, 
Foot binding persisted in China for something like a thousand years until the practice was officially banned in the early 20th century by sushi, but we'll get to that. So where we left off last time, I don't know if you can hear this on the microphone, you probably can't, but my cat Hepburn is next to me very loudly drinking from a water dish that I put next to me. This is some behind the scenes information, but I always have a glass of water next to me when I'm recording episodes and Hepburn without fail will jump on the table and try to drink the water. So today I cleverly put out her own water dish, which she's been drinking from. Anyway, very loudly. That's my pro tip, podcasting 101. Anyway, so where we left off last time, we have Sushi and her best friend, So Anne, had pulled off a mostly bloodless coup and had taken power, except for their shared six-year-old son was technically the emperor, but they were the regents. So bear in mind for the entire rest of this story which, spoiler, is going to last numerous more decades. There are a few things constantly happening all the time, and I won't get into every detail of all of it. As I said before, I'm just really focusing on Sushi, her experience, her life. But just know that in the background of everything I'm talking about, there is just chaos constantly. I was trying to think of something to compare it to. It's, I don't know, like (laughs) America today. But, um, you know, all the previous emperors and stuff in China there was always, you know, backstabbing of like, who's going to be the next emperor and who is the heir and like people are scheming and stuff. So that's also going on. And we'll talk about that. But in the background, it's just like chaos. So the West, which is how this was often referred to in the biography I was reading, which really just means like England and France, mostly other countries became involved. Uh, The US becomes on the scene at one point, I think like Germany, the West was just nonstop fucking things around in China by... So England had was doing the whole thing we talked about last time, the opium war, getting people addicted to opium so they would have something to trade for tea because people in England really like tea. This all connects this international season. Because remember in the Hortense Mancini episode, it was Charles II's wife who was from Portugal who made tea be popular in England because Portugal had conquested India and they liked their chai. Anyway, the West was just constantly invading. Every now and then, like one country would side with China against another country, but it was like a lot to keep track of. So just know that's going on all the time. Um, Because China had had this closed door policy for so long. And just in the like 19th century, they started dealing with other countries a bit more, which led to just all this war, all this invasion, all this stuff happening. Christian missionaries started coming in. We'll see some of the results of that as well. Anyway, so just note, people constantly invading. There's actually a point, so I do want to give credit as well on this episode to friend of the podcast and occasional co-host, Lana Johnson, who I believe she was a TA in when she was in university in a class that was studying this period. So she was able to answer a lot of my questions just to understand better the context of what was going on. And in fact, she was the one who suggested this story. Thank you, Lana. So I mentioned this detail to her and she was like, you have to say that on the episode. So the detail was during one of these like many permutations of like England and France and China and like who's at war with who and who's allied with who. There was a point at West during one of these wars or battles where the French stepped up and helped out China. And so, so she issued a proclamation, I think, saying, you know, thank you so much. England and France were really helpful in this situation. Or maybe she said like the West. And France was like, Zoot alors! Like, oh mon dieu! 
they were like, we did it, France. Like, how dare you mention England also did it? That wasn't England. It was us, France. And so she was like, you're all kind of the same thing to me. So like, calm down. And I like that as a moment in this story because so much of the history that I've read, the history of like Western civilization, quote unquote, is talking about, especially like England or European countries. And it's always very, you've heard me a million times in this podcast have trouble remembering what, you know, there's all those places that came together and then that became Spain or like Italy wasn't really a country for a long time. It's like, well, this is Naples and this is Rome and they're all different. I have trouble keeping track of all that stuff. And Sushi, who had been in China for so long, that just didn't fuck with the rest of the world at all. Like all these people coming in and they're like, we're England and we're France. And she's like, this all kind of seems like the same thing to me. And I'm just to flip that lens of how you view history, I think is really interesting because as much as <laughs> I mean, I was going to say like no tea, no shade, but like tea and shade, like as much as England has historically presented themselves as like the main characters of all of history, it's like they weren't to everyone. You're not that special. So, but also I appreciate it because it's similar. It's similar in, I appreciate the similarity of it to how, like we've talked in the podcast, you know, the Spanish came over to the Americas and they're like, so all the people who are all of these different tribes and nations and federations, and they're all just like the Indians, where it's like, no, actually, there's lots of different groups of people who you just encountered. Or like, in this era, people from the West would go and they'd be like China, Japan, you know, Vietnam, Korea, and they're just like the Orient, where it's like anyone can be dismissive in that way. You just don't often see it happening to England and France. So anyway, love that for them. So, yeah, one of the things we in the background was just the West doing shit. And then also there was a lot of rebellions going on, like within China. It's a huge landmass, like the borders of what I'm talking about here is not exactly the borders of modern day China, but similar, similar size. And there's so many different ethnic groups. And like, how can you, how could one emperor stay on top of a landmass that is this big. It's like when I was reading about Genghis Khan a while ago, I was saying his Mongol kingdom, which again was like, what, like 400 years before all of this, but it was the size of like the continent of Africa. Like it's a huge, the landmass that is like Europe and Asia. It's gigantic. So like just to communicate around. Anyway, so there's lots of rebellions going on all over the place. So just please know that's also happening. And the rebellions are mostly are the ones that I read about and pertaining to the story are what was described as like peasants. So remember the society, the Confucian society is very, this caste system, whether you're either like a fancy rich person or you are not. And the people who were not just like, were having a lot of rebellions a lot of the time. So those are the two things, invasions from the West and then internal constant rebellions that are just always going on in the background of everything I'm telling you about. And those are challenges that were faced by Sushi that previous emperors did not have to deal with. So, but the stuff she was dealing with that all the previous emperors had to deal with were the behind the scenes scheming, lobbying for attention among all the people behind the scenes. So it, there's a lot going on. It takes like a special person to stay on top of all of this. And turns out Sushi, she's that girl. So Sushi, so, Su so Anne, best friends, they're both what, like 25 years old, and they're in charge. 
So she had ideas about how to pull China out of the closed-door policy that their shared husband had been so committed to, um, and which every other Qing emperor had been doing for the past 100 years. Similar to what Queen Min got up to, and just for scale, Queen Min, her whole life, like from birth to death, was shorter than the time period that Sushi was in charge of China. So this is like similar time period, but so she stays in power a lot longer. But similar issues of like, like Chosun Kingdom, like China had been closed door policy, which was functional in some ways for their society to kind of flourish internally. But as soon as you start dealing with the West, um, you need to modernize, basically. So yeah, and so she saw that because she was smart. She saw that it was time to open the kingdom up to the outside world. And these two women, like, they got to work. The hustle is real. They both got up very early in the morning, like a 4 a.m. type situation, which I appreciate in the biography by Zheng Cheng that mentioned. So she found this challenging, and as, like, a non-morning person, could not relate more. They had to get up there early in order to be dressed and ready by 7 a.m. to take their spots in the audience hall. So that's where they sat side by side behind a yellow silk screen in order to talk with counselors with the child emperor, now named Tongzi, in front of the screen. And that was because women and men couldn't be in a room together. So they were technically there, but behind this yellow screen, which I think we've had, I can only remember in Agrippina, that was a thing where she was like sitting in on all the like meetings of the counselors, the parliament or whatever, but she had to stay behind a screen or something. So we've seen this before where it's just like, it's such a loophole. It's like, yeah, women can't like be in charge of stuff, but like they can if they're behind a screen. It's like, I don't know, the difference between that and just like letting them be in charge seems pretty minute to me, but it was like a loophole that was necessary apparently. So later on, if you'll remember, the recurring character of Prince Gong, Hot Prince Gong, the smoldering smoke show who was he was on Team Sushi during the whole usurping the throne situation. Some people later claimed that he was the brains behind the operation. And as evidence, they mentioned that Sushi was, as I described last time, semi-literate. But that is not true. Um, it's not true that Hot Prince Gong was in charge because documents do exist showing that Gong and all of the others, all the other like, important counselors reported to Sushi, although she would turn to him for advice as needed. And she did like sign off on all the paperwork. She knew that she needed to improve her language skills and learn more about the classics of Confucian literature. So she studied with teachers who were um, described as educated eunuchs. So they read to her or she read out loud to them like every day. I think in the midday, she did it until she like fell asleep, had a little nap, woke up and then did it again that night. The only men that she was allowed to be around not with the screen were the male eunuchs who were the servants we're going to talk about them a bit more in a bit so yeah under sushi china entered a long period of peace with the west hot prince gong was there helping out too because remember he has these like really good diplomatic skills he's such a good mediator a british diplomat who encountered him hot prince gong reported that he was full of jokes and fun so he had like personal charisma as well as hotness and smartness so this is where I'm just going to like super quickly talk through this. But so there was a peasant rebellion um, against a group of people called the Taiping who had been waging battles in China for a decade. 
These are people from a cult I think I talked about really briefly last time. Who? So the Western Christian missionaries had come on the scene and they were just kind of like, this is our religion. This is our God. Um, his son was Jesus. And then this guy called Hong Ji Kwan was like, got it. Jesus was like the son of God. I, Hong Ji Kwan, am Jesus's younger brother. And there, it just got, it turned into quite a situation, a decade long sort of violent, murderous cult running around burning villages and things. Following this guy who claimed to be Jesus's younger brother. Um, there's big, big potential in his story for, so this asshole on the Patreon, I might need to get into that. We'll see. Anyway, at this point, so she was working with Western allies and they defeated this group, the, this quote unquote Christian cult. Other rebellions were put down one after another within a few years of seizing power. So she and Sa'an had restored peace, which gave them even more authority. People like trusted them now. So the country, though, had spent millions on the wars and the streets of Beijing filled with beggars because not unlike now, like when things go really badly financially, just a lot of people end up down on their luck. But within a decade under Sushi's rule, the economy recovered largely due to customs revenue from increased trade with the West. So like she knew that dealing with the West more often would mean you could trade things, which means you could like charge custom fees and... So for the people who just, her predecessors, who wanted to just like not fuck with the West, like they were missing out on this income and she saw that this could work. So yeah, so like 10 years passed, the first decade of rule within this period of time, Sushi and Sa'an, although like even Sa'an would say like Sushi was kind of like the main one in charge, Sa'an was kind of soft skills. She was there helping out, but like everyone knew Sushi was kind of like the main one in charge, and she had revived a war-torn country, founded a modern navy. Oh yeah, because China had not had a navy before, despite having a lot of coastline. We're going to talk about this in a later episode in more detail, but they had, they had been sort of like just taking old fishing boats and turning them into like maybe navy vessels. At one point, they had like hired pirates to work for them. Like anyway, she found a navy. That was an important thing. And she began building a modern army and arms industry. So using things like the same weapons that people had in the West. And she did all this from behind the silk screen um, and not being able to go into like large parts of the Forbidden City because she was a woman, because Hot Prince Gong was a man and he had her back and was totally on the same page and was able to go in those rooms for her. She was also interested in learning more about the world and what was going on in other places. So she started sending travelers overseas to report back. So I could learn more about what things were like in other places. And so that's where she learned things like about Queen Victoria in England and how in Europe women could be crowned monarchs just like men. One of her emissaries reported back how everybody in Victoria's country sings in praise of her wisdom. So, so she was seeing like, okay, like in other places, this sort of stuff is possible for women to rule, not just technically as a regent of a boy from behind a screen. Yeah, so, so she had taken over when she was around, what, 25? And then... A decade-ish later, when she was around 34 years old, she, I mean, spoiler, I call this section of my notes, super sad love story. It is a sad story, but telling. So she fell in love with a eunuch named An Dehai, known as Little An. So eunuchs were men hired to work in the palace. And the only way that you could get those jobs was if either in childhood or in adulthood, you had your penis and balls cut off. 
And that was so that men could interact with women, but there wasn't the, I don't know. <laughs> it's a whole complicated thing. There's eunuchs and other cultures as well. But these were the only men with whom she was allowed to interact, not from behind a screen. And this caused various medical problems for the eunuchs. Some, like, I think they had to wear diapers and stuff. Like, it caused incontinence to, like, have, like, important body parts cut off. And eunuchs, so although this was, like, why would anyone take this job? It's like, well, if, like, you're poor and you need a job, this is, like, a well-paying job you could have in the palace. And the only way to work in the palace was to be a eunuch. So, um, that being said, eunuchs were regarded with disgust by other men, and they lived, like, virtual prisoners in the palace. They were rarely allowed out. So, little on served Sushi for years and became indispensable to her, ever knew he was her favorite, and that she was in love with him. So the year that her son Tongzi, the emperor, was 13, and it was time for, for planning to start, for his whole like selection of choosing his bride and his concubines, planning his wedding party, and so she decided to send her favorite little An to the royal dressmakers in Suzhou, near Shanghai, to supervise the procurement of the dresses, I guess the gowns and things. What's shocking about this is that no Qing emperor had ever sent a eunuch out of the capital on an errand ever before, but she wanted her friend, little An, and I, I would assume he probably wanted this too. Like he wanted, she wanted him to have like an adventure and to see the world. So he headed out in a group, including other eunuchs and family members. But when they got to Shandong, the governor there arrested him and the group saying that he should be executed for breaking the rules. So the rule was, like, eunuchs can't leave the palace unless they have permission. But he did have permission. So Sushi had broken a tradition, if not a law. And this is sort of, that's part of it. But part of it also was Prince Chun. So Prince Chun is the half-brother of Hot Prince Gong and also the half-brother of the dead previous emperor. And he was the one who had married Sushi's sister. So he was her brother-in-law. And he kind of saw her... He wasn't a fan of what she was up to. I think he kind of resented what she was doing. And he saw with what little An had done, this was a way to kind of indirectly punish her. So he was also insistent little An must be put to death for leaving the palace. There was a rumor, perhaps, that she was having an affair with little An. And so Prince Chen maybe wanted to cover that up as a scandal. And then it's kind of like when the momentum is going, it, like it just couldn't be stopped. Like Prince Gong also agreed little An should be executed. So she couldn't personally intervene because she was involved in the situation, like she was the one who had sent him out there. She got Se'an to speak for her, pleading for little An's life to be spared, sent him to prison instead, that sort of thing. But all these efforts failed, and Se'an was forced to allow the decree to execute him to be sent out. And little An was beheaded, as were the other eunuchs who had accompanied him on this trip. So she was so upset by this. Um, after his execution, she collapsed and was bedridden for a month, unable to sleep. She just had kind of a nervous breakdown type situation. She was inconsolable. Only music helped her. So to this end, she had operas put on daily and nonstop music played in her quarters, like in an era before recorded music. This just meant people were there playing music or singing. And much like Njinga, a few hundred years before in another part of the world, she began scheming how to get revenge on Prince Chun for doing this to her beloved little An. So to explain how she got revenge on Prince Chun, we need to talk for a minute about the new emperor. So he took in the emperor named Tongzi, 
His name when he was born was Zaichen. And this was Sushi's son. This is the whole reason why she's able to become Empress Dowager because she had physically given birth to this child. Although technically, Sa'an was the mother because she was the Emperor's wife. Anyway, we're going to call him Tongzi. And like so many sons of so many tits out women on this podcast, he was kind of useless. Like if you have your vulgar history bingo card, which is like somewhere on Instagram, I feel like useless son is on there because this happens so often. You have these like amazing self-starters, tits out women, and their sons are just kind of like, I don't know. It's like, again, I always come back to Game of Thrones because it's like Game of Thrones pulls from all history ever. But it's like the Cersei Joffrey thing. Or it's also like in history, it's like Agrippina and Nero. Like it's just these amazing women and their sons were just kind of there. I don't know if it's kind of like all the discussion nowadays, but like Nepo babies and stuff where it's like, if the parent works really hard to succeed, then the children are born with this level of privilege and money where they don't develop that drive and that resourcefulness. So they just don't become as... I don't know, because they don't need to become as much fighters as their parents were. What I'm trying to say is just Tongzi sucks. So here we go. He, I mean, okay, Tongzi sucks, comma, and he was just not the right person to be the emperor at this time. And not everybody is suited for that. And, you know, God bless. Like Tongzi was just not the right guy for this job. But you wouldn't know that when he was a little boy chosen. So he'd been tutored by the best scholars in China every day since he was five. He was not enthusiastic about schooling. He did not take to it and he was always bored. So some of the stuff I read was just saying like he was lazy, he whatever, why I'm just like this might be like an ADHD, like learning disability situation. Like he did not learn to read or write far past the age when people would have expected him to. I think he was like 10 or 12 and he still like couldn't read or write. And some of the stuff I was reading was like because he was lazy and he hated school, which is possible, like comma and maybe he had some sort of learning difficulties anyway, but to be in a job where it depended on you reading, writing a lot and memorizing these like Confucian texts, like this was not ideal for him. So his main slash only interest, again, like Emperor Nero from the Agrippina episode was performing. He liked music. He liked opera. He couldn't sing well. So he took on kind of non-singing roles. He would perform in them, um, dancing and doing martial arts because that was more of his speed. And then as a teenager, he learned about sex, which became the only thing he wanted to do ever. So he would sneak out of the, in the time-honored method of like previous emperors before him, he'd sneak out of the Forbidden City with his best friend to visit um, sex workers whenever they could. And I believe it was this guy who was said to go visit sex workers of more than just one gender. Anyway, so he's just a teenager. All he wanted to do is acting in operas and just go fucking, which is like when you're the emperor, not, not the priorities one wants to see. Anyway, meanwhile, Sushi was planning his wedding. They had chosen, like there's that selection again, like the same way Sushi and Sa'an were chosen. And out of all the eligible young girls, the person who's chosen to be his empress is a person, a young girl who's consistently referred to as either Miss Alut or Lady Alut. I'll just call her Alut, I guess. So she was of Mongol ancestry, the daughter of the only Mongol to ever come top in the national exams. So this was, I forget if I said this before, but like the only way that people who were not Manchu could elevate themselves in the society was to do amazing in these exams, which I think were based on reading Confucian texts and being able to recite them back. 
So anyway, Elut was an extreme devotee of Confucian values and obeyed her father absolutely. And I think this is part of why she was chosen. Um, it was assumed she would do the same for her husband. She did. On their wedding night, he sent her away and did not sleep with her. Like there's something about, I think he really pressured Sushi and Sa'an to choose her because he knew he wouldn't want to sleep with her, which is like an interesting thing. So in fact, I don't think he had sex with any of the concubines who had been chosen for him. He preferred sex workers. So I think he might have preferred also sex workers with the like bound feet, which is, um, yeah. So after the wedding, a ceremony was held in which Tongzi, age 16, officially took over as emperor. The yellow screen, Sushi and Sa'an sat behind us folded up and they retired to the harem. So in their mid thirties, mid late thirties, he like unsurprisingly based on what I've told you about him, he did not like having more responsibilities. Um, things that kind of worked best when he wasn't responsible for anything. He um, slept in, he canceled meetings and was generally just like not suited for this job. The one big thing that he was really passionate about was rebuilding the summer palace, which was, so I say the summer palace, but it's like, I'll talk about it a bit more later. It was like more than just one palace. It was like a bunch of buildings all around these lakes. It's this beautiful structure. And that was the one that had been burned down by the French in part one of this podcast. He really wanted it to be rebuilt, partially because I think he wanted to go and live there because it would be easier for him to sneak out and go on his like fuck adventures. It was complicated to sneak out of the Forbidden City, as you might imagine, for a place called the Forbidden City. I think it had like um, a time where he had to be back in and stuff. So anyway, he just kind of wanted to rebuild this. This was his whole big passion. So yeah, so he's sneaking in the palace, apparently in disguise, um, spent his time frolicking with eunuchs. I think a lot of what I've read about him as kind of queer coded when you read things like about a young man frolicking with eunuchs. That's where my mind goes. But the thing about the Summer Palace, there wasn't enough money to renovate the Summer Palace because of the country being at war all the time. And also the whole Confucian societal thing was like, the emperor was supposed to sort of hold to these, the standards of the philosophical culture of society. So they didn't want to see him indulging in pleasure-seeking behavior. And everyone knew he wanted to renovate the Summer Palace to be his like fuck palace. So Hot Prince Gong and Prince Chun tried to do an intervention, but Tongzi flipped out, accused him of bullying him, and then he like fired them both. So the counselors wrote to Sushi asking her to intervene. Like she was just off enjoying her retirement, but she was just like, ugh, ugh, my son, okay. So she got him, she just like came and had like a big talking to with him and he listened to her because one of the writings about her mentioned how her eyes were really intense. Like when she looked at you, you were just like, oh, okay, I'll do whatever you say. So I think she gave him the mom look, like the mom facial expression was like, get your shit together. And he did. So he rescinded the orders to fire Prince Gong and Prince Chen. And then they both had to abandon the dream of the summer palace where Sushi, like, bear in mind, also wanted to go there. She wanted it to be rebuilt so she could live there because she loved nature. She wanted to be by the lake, but she was just like, no, like we can't financially do this like there's no reason to do this and then the young teen emperor fell ill so it's potentially smallpox which was going around at this time it may have been a sexually transmitted disease like syphilis whatever he had he was covered with lots of painful blisters and he wound up dead age 19 having ruled on his own for less than two years there is an allegation that sushi had him poisoned but that's just kind of like 
anyone who died, there's a rumor that Sushi poisoned them. There is going to be one where she for sure did. But this is like, no, it was her son. Like, as much as he was a shit, like, not only did she, like, love him as her son, but also she, like, the dynasty was so important to her, like, the monarchy was so important to her, like, she wouldn't have done that. I don't think. So his wife, Alut, very shortly thereafter, died by suicide because she was so committed to the Confucian values. For a woman to take her own life upon her husband's death was seen as an illustrious virtue, which is hearkening all the way back to when we were looking at Rani Ditta in like medieval Kashmir, where there's the whole thing about her husband died and everyone expected her to kill herself. So um, the way that Alut died was she starved herself to death intentionally. She died 70 days after him. And again, some people blame Sushi for poisoning her. They're like, maybe she was pregnant and Sushi wanted to kill her so that her son wouldn't be the new emperor. But like, again, like, I mean, I don't think that is true. But where we started with all this was remember Sushi was playing a long game to get revenge on Prince Chun. That is what comes next. So after Tongzi died, like right after when he was still lying there, like dead in his bed, Sushi called in the counselors to discuss what to do next. Because again, he had had no sons. He had not left a will. Remember, he had to like write the will with a special red quill pen in the red ink and put it, the paper in a box and stuff. Like there was no, they didn't know who was supposed to be in charge next. But so she explained, and we'll just take her word for this, I guess, that on his deathbed, Tongzi had requested so she and Sa'an set up the screen and become the co-regents again. So she is like, we need to choose a new child to be the next baby emperor. So normally the widow of the dead emperor would adopt a son and that would be the next king or the next emperor. And at this point, like this is a flashback of a bit and Alut was still alive at this point. So she could have done that. But if she had a baby or adopted a baby, then Sushi wouldn't be the regent because she would be the grandmother of that baby. So Sushi was like, what if Sa'in and I adopt a new little boy to be the new little boy emperor? And everyone's like, okay. And this is the revenge plan. She's like, and the boy that I choose is Zetian, the three-year-old son of Prince Chun, her enemy slash brother-in-law. This was also her nephew because Prince Chun's wife was her sister. So Prince Chun freaked out immediately. Like he fell into convulsions, howling and knocking his head on the ground until he passed out. And I do want to mention that that extreme display of emotion I don't, I don't have it in my notes every time it happened, but like people felt things very passionately throughout the story. Like I think Prince Gong had moments like that. Like people are just like physically demonstrating emotions. Like really, there's a lot of crying among the people in this story. Why was he so upset? His son was the emperor. Don't you think that'd be good news? It's not because Zetian was his only son and he adored him. I think he, he and his wife, so she's sister, had had a couple of children who had died in infancy. So they really doted on this boy. And for him to become emperor meant that Chun would lose him. He wouldn't be able to have anything to do with him. And that would also remove his political role because as the emperor's biological father, he couldn't be the regent and he would have to resign all his official posts to avoid accusations he was using undue influence to meddle in state affairs. So this like silenced him and stole his son away from him. But in like a sushi way, like bloodlessly. But at the same point, after he freaked out, The whole thing about like, when they go low, we go high. So she got her revenge, but then she went high. He was appointed by her to supervise Zetian's education, which would allow him regular access to his son. And so he was like, oh my God, I'm so grateful. Thank you so much. 
And then he and all of his allies and friends were suddenly like, love Sushi. They're all on team Sushi again. No longer was she their enemy because she had, she could have been cruel to him, but she wasn't. And they appreciated that. And so he had like a whole like complete reassessment of his life and personality. His new motto, Prince Chun, was step back and think how to make up for past wrongs, which was carved into a plaque over the door to his study. Like he's just like, like Scrooge in a Christmas carol after seeing the ghosts. Prince Chun was just like, I'm gonna be a good person now. And then just in terms of like gender stuff, I found this interesting. So she got her new adopted son slash nephew, the new emperor, Zetian, to refer to her as Papa Dearest or my royal father as she took over kind of a fatherly role in his life while Sa'an acted more maternally as kind of a mother figure. So I'm always here for some gender interesting stuff. So, so she is in charge again. And she got right to work, sending out emissaries and ambassadors to Western nations, building a railroad, just getting on with the stuff that she had been up to two years ago when she was, had to retire the first time. But um, this was, remember, there's like the West is invading, there's wars going on, peasant rebellions, like this was stressful. And she had another nervous collapse. So for days on end, she couldn't sleep, had no energy and coughed blood. Um, and so Sa'an took over. Well, so she was treated by a doctor who seems almost like a time-traveling version of the doctor from the Christine of Sweden episode who told her to take baths and sleep more because this guy stepped in, helped her out, and she eventually recovered. But then, in 1881, Sa'an passed away. Now, she had been ill for a while and had had what seemed like probably a series of at least three strokes, one of which affected her speaking ability because... It was mentioned at some point that she had trouble finding her words, trouble talking for a while. So April 8th, 1881, she suddenly became ill while attending an imperial court session and died within a few hours, just aged 43. Now again, there were rumors later, not at the time though, that Sushi had poisoned her so she could be in charge completely. But I mean, we all know Sushi would never. They were besties. They were ride or die soulmates. They were like, Sandra O oh and Ellen Pompeo on Grey's Anatomy, that was her person. And also, like, so she was in charge. Like, removing Sa'an wouldn't get her more power or anything. So anyway, so she was obviously extremely upset about this. She mourned this death as she would an intimate and superior family member by wrapping her head in her own head in a white silk scarf, which was beyond the expected mourning etiquette. The etiquette mandated a mourning period of 27 days, but she extended that to 100 days along with a 27-month ban on music in the royal court. So remember how much she liked music? Like, this was serious business and showed just how, what a tribute she wanted to make to her dead best friend. So within days after the ban was lifted in 1883, so she just, like, got all in. She watched opera nonstop for 10 hours. And thereafter, there were continuous performances for days. Like, one performance lasted 12 hours. She just, like, every time someone dies in this story, or in Qing Dynasty in this era, there was a certain period of like months or years where just no music could be played. And between all the emperors dying and then her friend dying, and for someone who loved music, like to not have music for these long periods of time really affected her. And now, without Sa'an there to smooth things over, so she was left on her own. So Zetian, her adopted son slash nephew, was the new boy emperor. She was not as close to him as she had been to her own son she had given birth to. But also, to be fair, she was kept busy with the various things that were always going on, 
the West, rebellions, people trying to usurp her. Um, at this point, Hot Prince Gong was also going through it. His whole thing of trying to appease people and find mediation, like ways to balance things, that was his way. And the fact that Soshi kept like deciding to go to war was stressing him out because that's not, he was not into confrontation or he's not into like going to war. He had also been suffering serious illnesses, and so he'd taken some leave of absences. His energy was exhausted. His judgment started to be not great. So she couldn't dismiss him because he had this high status, and he wasn't going to offer to resign. So it was all just getting, like, awkward for everybody. And now we're just going to take a break for a word from our sponsors. Do you know how much you have in common with some of your favorite celebrities, leaders, newsmakers, I'm Evelyn, the host of Reppin, where you'll meet notable people you think you know. You'll find out who they really are and what they represent. Listen to Reppin wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Then, one day in the middle of a series of devastating war defeats, Prince Gong just wandered in to talk to Sushi about her upcoming 50th birthday party. And she was like, with a border situation like this, you're talking about birthday presents? And she was just like, what is up with this guy? So she entailed the help of Prince Chun. And they kind of did this uh, remix of the thing when she took over in the first place. She sent Gong out of town. And then when he came back, they had an official scroll saying he was donezo. He was fired. They didn't see each other again for 10 years. And I'll get to what happened 10 years later. Later. Anyway, regardless. So she was a really effective leader during this period of war. Um, and one respect of yet more men who care about things like being a good leader in war. Prince Chun, like, Scrooge, after having been visited by the ghosts, like, with his new personality, was her new right-hand guy. And in a major gesture to kind of apologize for the whole, like, having her best friend murdered, he went to inspect new ships and, as a treat, brought along Sushi's new favorite eunuch, Li Lin Yang, with him. So Chun had basically gotten little on killed, but now he's treating her new favorite eunuch to a trip as kind of a gesture of apology, which Sushi appreciated. So 1886, Zetian, who was, could not be more different from the previous boy emperor. He was very scholastic minded. He excelled in his emperor studies. Um, he turned 15 and it was expected Sushi would retire as regent. And because last time that had not gone well, everyone kind of panicked because they knew that she was the best leader they could have. Prince Chun, the biological father of the emperor, convinced his Zetian, the son, to beg Sushi to stay. So she did agree to stay on for a few more years. But no, she really just wanted to, <laughs> to retire. She wanted to go to the Summer Palace and paint and listen to opera and be not in charge of this country constantly in chaos that caused her all these health problems. But they're just like, but no one else can do it besides you. Like the country wouldn't let her go. And where this is making me feel, I know there are some young people listening to this podcast, but I'm remembering my own youth where when you're working together with people in a school project and it's just like no one's taking control, no one's being in charge. And I like inevitably it was me who's like, okay, let's get this done. Like, which was always annoying that no one else would step up, but it was always me who had to step up. And this is what Sushi's going through, but at a like countrywide level she's just like could someone else please for once be in charge and all of china is like mm, not really so 1889 at the height of her achievements at this point so she announced she was so she stayed on for like a couple extra years like two three extra years and then she announced she was going to retire and cede 
power to the new teen emperor upon his marriage. So yet again, there was The Selection. I just saw the other day, um, there's that series of books, The Selection by Kira Cass, which are kind of like romance novels, romance fantasy science fiction novels about like a future world where, I don't know, it's, it's called The Selection and there's all these teenage girls and they all, it's like, who's going to be chosen to be the new wife of the prince? It's like Cinderella, but mixed with The Hunger Games and reality TV. And I like them a lot. Anyway, I saw The Selection. I'm like, oh, what's happening here is just like The Selection. So all the young Manchu teenage girls slash in the early 20s were presented. And so she helped to choose who would be the new empress, which she chose her brother's daughter, Long Yu, who no one else is very enthusiastic about. She was plain and also had like a boring personality. But so she liked her as like a blank slate sort of person. At the same time, two sisters were selected as concubines and their names were Pearl and Jade. Pearl was 12, Jade was 14, and they are important new characters. So just remember those names, Pearl and Jade. Bear in mind also read their age. The emperor at this point was 16. So like choosing a 12 and 14 year old as your concubines is like meh, but it's not like he's 65. Like it's not great, but we've seen worse. So yeah, Zetian didn't like Longyu, who was like, plain and boring. He treated her coldly. His favorite, he preferred Pearl, who, in a pants moment, and to the emperor's delight, dressed the way that he wanted her to, with what, which was, with no makeup, her hair worn in a men's style, and men's clothing. So Pearl is wearing men's clothing, like he liked, he liked a woman in pants. I, I just like that Pearl came out of nowhere to give us a pants moment in this episode. Like, love it. So yeah, um, once the emperor took over, he kind of swept aside all of Sushi's reforms and the westernization, the modernization she'd been up to for like 12 years or something. And he went back to running the empire as previous male emperors had done before him. So his thing was, I had mentioned he was really good at school and things, but he was kind of like, the way that I've described school before was kind of like memorize these like a thousand year old Confucian writings. So he was kind of he was living in kind of a theoretical world where he was treating things. He's like, well, this worked in the year, you know, 1500. So let's just do that again. Where it's like, uh, the 20th century is like on the cusp. Like, it's not going to work out well for him. I do want to mention right now, because we're getting close to an hour of this episode. And usually I try to keep these episodes to an hour, but for various reasons, so she needs to be a two-part episode. So this is like, pace yourselves. <laughs> um, Maybe you could stop here and then next week listen to the next hour of this episode. But like, I'm keeping going. Like, I'm not stopping. There's a lot to get through and I can't do a three-parter. I'm halfway through my notes, even with having eliminated an awful lot of stuff. Anyway, so Sushi, Retired Life, part one. She had been, <laughs> see, okay, this is like a controversial part. She'd been setting money aside to go towards the renovation fund to renovate her beloved Summer Palace. Summer Palace was on Kunming Lake, which she loved. Um, she loved that it was in nature. Like she'd been in the Forbidden City since she was a teenager, which was kind of like indoors, not near nature, not her favorite thing. She wanted to just like live outside in the world. So yeah, a bit of CC vibes. So she giving CC vibes, like she likes nature, she likes the outdoors. And so the restoration of the Summer Palace and this money she was setting aside is a whole kind of thing about like, did she steal this money? Was she like laundering this money? Did she divert money from the Navy at a time when the country was at war to restore it? And basically, kind of, 
Um, she did pay a lot of her own money on this, but she did divert some money from the government to try and make it be... But I, I'm going to say everybody was kind of corrupt at this point. It's not like everyone there was like amazingly ethical and moral with their money and she was like siphoning money away. It's kind of like everyone was doing it. So anyway, I'm not here to say like she was great and everything she did was great. But like this gets overblown, I think, a bit when pe- people who want to criticize her are just like, the reason that China lost all these wars is because she took all this money that she gone to the Navy and made a palace with it, where it's like, mm, but also other things were happening. Anyway, to try to cover for like, spending so much money on this, Prince Chun, her new right-hand man, suggested, well, what if the new Navy did their training in Kunming Lake, which would make it all seem like a necessary expense to like restore the lake? And she's like, sure, but like the Navy ships wouldn't fit in the lake, so I'm not sure. It wasn't a great cover story. So again, the Summer Palace was not just one building. It was and is a vast ensemble of lakes, gardens, and palaces. So it covers an expanse of 2.9 square kilometers, 1.1 square miles, three quarters of which is water. And part of this is the marble boat. Friend of the podcast, Lana Wood Johnson, emphasized this is important to talk about. So the marble boat is a lakeside pavilion on the grounds of the Summer Palace. It was first built in... 1755, so like 100-ish years before, and it was originally made from a base of large stone blocks which supported a wooden superstructure done in a traditional Chinese design. So it's not a boat that can float, it's just like a building in a lake that looks like a boat. So it was burned when the rest of the Summer Palace was burned by the French. So she restored it, which included a new two-story superstructure, which incorporated elements of European architecture. It's made out of wood, but painted to look like marble. And on each deck, there is a large mirror to reflect the waters of the lake and give an impression of total immersion in the aquatic environment. Imitation paddle wheels on each side of the pavilion makes it look like a paddle steamer. It has a sophisticated drainage system, which channels rainwater through four hollow pillars, which is finally released into the lake through the mouths of four dragon heads. It is gorgeous, and one can visit it as a tourist attraction today. But it is. Uh, seen by some as an ironic commentary on the fact that the money used to restore it largely came from funds originally earmarked for building up a new navy. Perhaps instead of funding a navy, they built a marble boat. Um, And this is a thing that comes up by people who like to talk about how so she was out of touch and not a good leader. So I just had to, to mention that. It's on my list of things I like to visit one day, frankly. But anyway, she was retired so she could live in the summer palace as she was renovating it. She could finally sleep in, um, which to her, having had to wake up at 4 a.m. for the last 12 years, um, now she could sleep in to like 8 a.m. Um, she hung out with her main eunuch pals who kept her up to date with all the latest goss. She spent a lot of time doing a morning beauty regime, getting her hair done, just like, it sounds like a fabulous life that she was living. It's like, if you saw a bit ago, there was this thing went viral that was about England's Prince Margaret and her daily routine. And it was kind of like that, just a day of leisure. She gave herself a new nickname, Old Buddha, both because she was a devout Buddhist and she liked that it was like an informal nickname, but also made her sound special. She smoked from a water pipe, which somebody else held for her. Um, <laughs> she got you know, lots of foot massages. She played kick shuttlecock. She went for walks. At one point, she went on a trip in a hot air balloon, which was recently a thing that was invented. I think it was for the army, but she got a trip. She walked the grounds on her boat rides. 
She adored plants and she was devoted to her orchard. She grew fruits and vegetables. She bred dogs, um, especially Pekingese dogs. She trained the dogs to do tricks. She hired a painting teacher who was a woman. She also really leaned into her interest in music and opera. She built a theater in the middle of the lake and put on these lavish productions and was just like, this is what she wanted for herself. This is what I want for her. Like I want this version of this, all of us, I want all my retirement to just like be this peaceful and nice. But then after a period of time, all the stuff that was going on, the West, the rebellions, it came to be too much. And it turns out that Zetian was not suited to be in charge. While she was retired, China had gone to war with Japan and the government came to her like, help me Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're our only hope type vibes or, you know, like an action movie where they're just like, we just need the detective to come back for one more case. Like, they're like, Suji, no one else can do this. Or like me doing a group project. They're just like, please come in. And she's just like, I guess. And so she came back to, she came back to be in charge again. Initially, she said she's only going to return to Beijing for 10 days, but then that got extended as she realized what a huge mess of things was going on. The emperor only gave her some information, but not all of it. So she started, she got to work finding a way that she could learn more about what was going on so she could fix it. And it turns out that all the people advising him, like the people were telling him, like, don't trust Sushi. Those people were all friends of Pearl, his pants concubine. So she was now 18. And it turns out that she had been taking advantage of her relationship with him to sell official jobs to her friends and to bribe officials, both of which were punishable by death. But because she was his favorite, she was able to get away with this. So she, of course, found out all about this. Um, She got Pearl and Pearl's eunuchs to confess by torturing the eunuchs and forcing Pearl to watch. And so she was like, Pearl, I'll cover up this scandal and not have you punished by death if you allow me access to the reports I want to see. Oh, no, sorry. She didn't say that to Pearl. She said that to the emperor. And the emperor... Agreed, because so she turned on her terrifying eyes. Anyway, so as much as it's like, oh, she's so hardcore, look at her doing amazing. Like this also, like emotionally, it was impacting her. Health-wise, it was impacting her. She would frequently pass out from stress. When she thought she was alone, people spotted her weeping. Um, And then a whole thing happened where her 60th birthday was coming up. And even though the country's supposed to be in austerity measures because of the wars, She's still, she's kind of tricked into accepting gifts. And then she was criticized for that because it's like, why isn't she spending the money on the war and stuff? Eventually, this war ended at a great loss of money and prestige and land for China. So she returned to retirement. I'm sure hoping for real this time. But this wasn't as carefree as retirement 1.0 because she was still in the loop of what was happening with the government. So she couldn't just relax into her art classes and opera performances and stuff. And the emperor now came to her regularly to ask her advice because he'd realized like she was a lot better at this than him. He was wounded in an assassination attempt. So things were like high stakes at this point. And at this point, the two of them got along. She said once that he was, quote, an extremely nice person. She also, as sort of a gesture to him, she restored Pearl's titles as well as those of Pearl's sister, Jade. And she was just trying to like consciously uncouple herself from being in charge. Like, so she was 60 plus. She had worked this hugely stressful job for so long. She wasn't the emperor. She just wanted to throw parties and produce operas and take painting lessons and like smoke her pipe. But that wasn't what happened because the emperor was not doing very well. And she was still the only person in the country able of leading. So here's what happens next. 1898, Prince Gong died RIP to a real hot guy 
On his deathbed, he had nothing but tears for the shattered empire he had fought for for so long. And so the emperor, now 26 years old, turned to Sushi because he was way out of his depth. And being monarch over China at this point was impossible for like anyone. Even he knew the only person even slightly capable of handling the job was his papa. And so the emperor at this point was all about reforms. Like he had gone from being like theoretical, let's rule, like it's the year 1400. And now he was like, no, let's modernize, let's westernize. And that was because he had fallen under the influence of a guy who's kind of like a Rasputin-like figure, whose name is Wild Fox Kang. So his real name was Kang Yowai, but he's called Wild Fox Kang. And this guy, it's like, it's we're really well into this episode, but he's going to, he's one of the most memorable people in this episode. So Wild Fox Kang had reformist ideas and a very high sense of self, as evidenced by the fact that he wrote a book called The History of Me, all about how amazing he was. And at first, so Sushi was impressed by his writings and his reformist ideas, because they all seemed kind of in line with what she wanted to do, which is like modernize, westernize. But he was called Wild Fox Kang. So I think we know he was not a great ally to anyone other than himself. So he knew that the young emperor was fragile and weak. He knew also that the emperor had always kind of resented Sushi. And so Wild Fox Kang encouraged the emperor to trust nobody apart from him. And so the emperor agreed to fire basically everyone and replace them with Wild Fox Kang's friends. So she learned about this and she was just like, oh no, this is just like what Elon Musk did when he took over Twitter. But the emperor was just like, no, Wild Fox Kang is like, he's so smart. I'm going to do everything he says. But secretly, Wild Fox Kang's whole thing was he wanted to make himself the new emperor because he claimed he, Wild Fox Kang, was the reincarnation of Confucius himself. Uh, the only person who saw through his like delusions was Sushi, which is why Wild Fox Kang decided to try and assassinate her. But a general loyal to Sushi learned about the assassination plans and told her everything, including that the emperor himself was aware of the assassination plan. Now Sushi, like she learned that this was going to go on, but then she like was like, okay, she played it so cool. She acted like nothing was wrong. She just went to visit the emperor. And just they just had like a meeting with, I don't know, some sort of visiting ambassador or something. And then ever so casually at the end of the meeting, she placed the emperor under house arrest, confining him to a villa in the middle of the lake at the sea palace, reachable only by a long bridge that could be opened and closed. So he became her prisoner, which is how and why he wrote an official decree saying Sushi was now his guardian, despite him being 27 years old, and she was in charge of the country again, against her will. So this time... The screen was removed. She got to sit there herself. Well, also, I guess, because the emperor maybe couldn't be in the room because he was a prisoner. Anyway, no screen. She's like literally un- like in charge now. Everyone knows it. She's able to be seen. Um, just to let you know, also, Wild Fox Kang was obviously arrested, or a warrant went out for his arrest, but he escaped to Japan. Um, so she didn't put him and his conspirators on trial because to do so would reveal that the emperor knew about the assassination plot and she didn't want anyone to think less of him. So actually no one knew about this assassination attempt in Wild Fox Kang until the 1980s when the paperwork about it was discovered. But yeah, Wild Fox Kang did not shut up about any of this. Like the narcissist he was, he fled the country and lived for 30 more years. Almost all of the accusations that have shaped public opinion about Sushi, about like her being like inept and like uh, Nymphomaniac, who just like had orgies all the time. Like this 
all originated from literally this guy, Wild Fox Kang, just talking shit about the woman who had outsmarted him. Like she claimed she had male concubines and nightly orgies with the eunuchs and like all this stuff was taken as fact for a while because he was just really convincing at making people think he knew what he was talking about when he did not. Anyway, so she tried to keep the reforms going. Meanwhile, the emperor, her prisoner, was very ill with symptoms, maybe having to do with kidney problems. She wanted to remove him, but she couldn't like kill him because politically that would be problematic. And although she was a reformer as well, like she wanted to modernize and westernize, he had been so extreme about it. Like when he was under the thrall of White Fox Kang, there was this thing called like, what was it? The hundred day, um, the hundred days reform where he was trying to reform things. And then she took over. So people kind of thought that that meant that she was against the reforms where it's like, actually, no, <laughs> it's the opposite. But once people hate a woman in power, it's hard to change their minds with facts. And meanwhile, all the things that were always happening were happening. And a thing called the Boxer Rebellion occurred, which is important. So I'll explain it as briefly as possible for context. So this was a peasant rebellion in 1900. And initially, so she supported it until it all went bad. So the Boxers was a name that foreigners gave to a Chinese secret society known as the Righteous and Harmonious Fists. The group practiced certain boxing and calisthenic rituals in the belief it made them invulnerable like they thought that if you didn't have exercise and boxing then like bullets would just bounce off of you sort of thing so the boxers started out anti-westerners and also anti the Qing dynasty but eventually they kind of changed their mind or they had their minds changed so that they would support the monarchy but they were very very anti-foreigners and so she was like you know what at this point me too like so she supported them and they're like anti-foreigner sort of rhetoric and like and when i say so she supported them i mean like she had like the government and everybody team up with them so the boxers um started openly attacking chinese christians and western missionaries burning churches and foreign residences killed suspected chinese christians on site the german minister was murdered other foreign ministers and their families and staff together with hundreds of chinese christians were besieged and basically war broke out and international force was assembled with the soldiers coming from Japan, Russia, Britain, the United States, France, Austria-Hungary, and Italy to fight against this thing that was happening. On August 14th, 1900, that force of like all these Western nations captured Beijing, which is where Sushi was. So at this point, she was forced to flee along with the emperor slash her prisoner, his wife, remember his boring wife, some other princes and princesses, and also the concubine Jade. What about Pearl and her pants? So Jay's sister Pearl was, it was complicated because she had been complicit in the assassination attempt and so she didn't maybe want to help her escape. So she instructed Pearl to kill herself, but Pearl refused. And so, so she ordered the eunuchs to push her into a well, which is what happened. And then Pearl died, RIP to Pearl in pants. So, so she, age 64, was hustled into a mule cart where she traveled for two days and nights to a town where they could be safe along with a big entourage. And the place where they were hiding out, apparently the cook was so good. She loved the food so much. After all this happened, that cook got a new job as working in the royal kitchen. I think it said something about like fried noodles or something. So, I mean, impressive, like quite a break for that cook. Um, yeah, so wherever she was became the new nerve center of the empire. So she finally settled into the ancient... Western Chinese city of Xi'an, 
And although the Western enemies wanted to remove her and put the emperor back in power, she was too beloved by all the people who served her, the, all the ministers, all the politicians of China were all on her side, not the emperor's side. So like that just wasn't possible. And she spent two years in Xi'an and the whole situation really cemented her authority. Like while she was there, she set up a new throne room where there was like a big throne for her, which was higher up and the emperor sat on a lower down throne. And so just visually, everybody could tell that she was in charge. And when she finally got back to Beijing, she had a similar throne chair situation set up there too. So after extensive discussions um, between the Chinese and the West, in September 1901, a protocol was signed, ending the hostilities and providing for reparations to be made from China to the foreign powers. So ultimately, something like 100,000 people died in the Boxer Rebellion, mostly civilians, including thousands of Chinese Christians, and something like 250 foreign nationals, mostly Christian missionaries. Somewhere around 3,000 military personnel were killed in combat most of them being boxers and other Chinese fighters. And this was, there's been a lot of rebellions in this story that I haven't mentioned, but this was such a major thing because of the international war it caused. So there was really, in terms of this story, there was a time before the Boxer Rebellion and a time after. And Sushi's post-Boxer Rebellion era was quite significantly different. So after all of this, Western governments recognized her as the indisputable leader of China. Wang Gai compared her to Catherine the Great, Elizabeth I, Hatshepsut, and Cleopatra as one of the great women rulers in history. In the aftermath of the Boxer Rebellion, Sushi embarked on a course of massive and profound change, really leaning into the modernization and westernization of China. She also made smaller acts of contrition, like she honored Pearl, the pants-wearing concubine who she had had murdered by throwing into a well, partially just to like placate the emperor who had loved her but also because some of the Western allies were specifically horrified by that specific thing she had done. Anyway, major milestone changes that she enacted post-rebellion included ending the ban on intermarriage between Han people and Manchu people. She decreed an end to foot binding. She released women from their homes and from male-female segregation, allowing women to appear in public, to go to theaters and cinemas, and allowing women access to education. She opened nursery schools. So already like male students had been permitted to study abroad and now she permitted female students to study abroad. During this era, Women's Daily, the only women's daily newspaper in the world at the time, began publishing. She also revamped the legal system to be more in line with what other nations were up to by doing things like abolishing death by a thousand cuts, um, prohibiting torture during interrogation. She founded a state bank with a yuan, yuan is the currency, yen, I think. She also made up, and I really appreciate this, like we're in our current era, like with opioids, you know, fentanyl and stuff, like she knew that because of the opium war and Britain getting the country intentionally addicted to opium, she knew that there's so many people in China who are addicted to opium. And she made up a 10 point plan to enable all people in the empire to break the habit of opium addiction. So this included, she got Britain on board with this plan so they would stop like sending opium to them or whatever. But she also got people to stop farming opium. She provided support for people who were trying to break their addiction. And within 10 years, the British export of opium had come to a complete stop. And I really like this as a compassionate thing. She wasn't just like, like she saw the people addicted to opium or people who were in need of help. She didn't just like, let's put them all in jail or whatever. So I appreciate that. 
She also proposed to turn China into a constitutional monarchy with an elected parliament. So these are like enormous changes to the society that I've talked about thus far in these podcasts. Meanwhile, goddamn Wild Fox Kang was still stirring shit, hating her. He was allied with the Japanese and he organized repeat attempts to assassinate Sushi, which were never successful. So her illness, which like, I do not know what her illness was, worsened. Like whatever her illness has been, you know where she would, whether it was purely stress related or just stress exacerbated it. But we talked before about like, there's times where she just like couldn't get out of bed, coughing up blood. Like part of this is obviously psychological, you know, depression and anxiety, but like clearly there's physical symptoms going on. So she was, and this was just worsening. So by the time she was 73, she felt feverish and dizzy all the time with a metallic ringing in her ears. The emperor, who was I think around 37, was also ill. He had been for quite a while. So four days after her 73rd birthday, she sensed that she would die soon. So she started to put the empire's affairs in order. She knew that if she died before the emperor, the Japanese, like he was such an ineffectual leader, the Japanese would swoop in and take over. So she decided that he had to die before her so she could decide on the succession, which is why this is the actual murder. We know she did. She decided to murder the emperor. So the emperor, so his name had been Zaitian, but as the emperor, he was Emperor Guangzhou, and he died. He had been sick for a while, but um, it was determined, I think, sometime within the last 20 or so years, his remains were exhumed and it was found that there was a massive amount of arsenic in his body. So like more than someone would accidentally have maybe absorbed. So he died from consuming large quantities of arsenic, likely laced in the food that was sent to him by Sushi, his like beloved papa. So he died. And then because Sushi was still alive, like apparently his wife was running from like his deathbed to like her deathbed back and forth. Remember his like boring plain wife? Anyway, so she outlived him, even if it was just for a day. She knew that she was still there and he wasn't. So she got to name who the next emperor would be because he hadn't had any sons. She selected her great nephew, Puyi, who is two years old, as the next emperor with his father as regent. And she died three days after Zaitian. Legacy. So Sushi is one of the longest reigning women in history, having served as regent for 47 years. And I looked up at other monarchs we've looked at on this podcast. And the closest anyone came to that was Njinga of Ndongo and Matamba reigned for 37 years. So 47 years. So her funeral was like a huge, massive thing, like on par with the funeral for any emperor, you know, dignitaries came in from all kinds of other countries to pay respects to her. I do appreciate that this season we've had several like really impressive funerals of people. That's a nice thing I like to see. But yeah, so we're going to talk about one then later in the various revolutions that happened after her death. Um, Her tomb was looted, um, but then the tomb was restored in 1949. As a Manchu minority and a woman ruling a vast country of 400 million for 47 years, during a lengthy and critical period of Chinese world history, her achievements were extraordinary. No other Manchu woman in history has acquired and exercised political power like at all, not to mention breaking dynastic laws by her own regency and the appoint she personally appointed three emperors. Um, despite her limited education, she was an art lover um, and she promoted and helped popularize things like opera and theater. So this is a statement, I think it's from the Oxford Biography of Women's History. 
which said with so many factors involved in China's history during Cixi's lifetime, like the rebellions, all the wars, the West, um, it may be a futile exercise to speculate what might have otherwise been China's experience had there been a different ruler or a male sovereign in control. But I think, I don't think anyone could have done a better job than she did. And as a person, you know, if you separate her acts as like country ruler from who she was as a person, when she hung out with, um, especially some Western diplomats came, like she hung out with wives of ambassadors and stuff from America, everybody emphasized that she was warm, she was friendly, she liked to smile. When you see the photos of her, like she always looks very serious, but that's like she put on her serious face for photos. But apparently she was a very smiley, friendly person in general, who was also a really effective military leader. So in the People's Republic of China after 1949, the image of Sushi was debated and changed several times. She's sometimes praised for her anti-imperialist role in the Boxer Uprising, and sometimes she was reviled as a member of the feudalist regime. When Mao Zedong's wife, Zhang Qing, was arrested in 1976 for abuse of power, an exhibit at the Palace Museum put Sushi's luxurious goods on display to show that a female ruler weakened the nation. By the 1970s, views among scholars began to change because, again, so much of what was written about her was based on Wild Fox Kang's just, like, utter slander. Su Fan Chung, who was uh, is a historian, she did a doctoral dissertation at University of California, Berkeley, which was the first study in English to use court documents rather than popular histories and hearsay, and to call out that Wild Fox Kang and other haters always had their word taken seriously and other people who said had dissenting opinions weren't taken as seriously. So yeah, so like because of Wild Fox Kang, like Sushi for a while was seen as being a she-dragon or someone who was incompetent, like this like nymphomaniac, like just she wasn't, it was really simplified and I don't know, not like taking in all the many layers of her as a person. So in recent decades, a historian of the dynasty named Pamela Kyle Crossley says historians in the West developed what had become truism in the representation of Sushi, that she had been obscured by misogyny and oriental stereotyping, as well as the anti-Manchu sentiment running through Chinese nationalist narratives. Crossley felt that Sushi appealed to feminists as a powerful leader and to Chinese patriots as a defender of China. In the 1960s and 70s, Sushi was one of a small collection of powerful women newly discovered, and now she appears in the vanguard of stubborn Chinese opposition to foreign arrogance and encroachment. So it's a wildly complex story of a woman who had many facets to her, and it's been really interesting to, to read up on her and to see how people have represented her in the past. Like, the amount of details... Again, like, this is already a extra-long episode, uh, but... Yeah, I really recommend reading Zheng Chang's biography of her because you can really get into all the, all the details about her and what she was up to. So first of all, and this should come as no surprise, I am awarding the Lady Jane Seymour Memorial Award for Outstanding Supporting Performance to Dowager Empress Se An, who not only saved Sushi from being executed for like having an opinion early on, but then for helping support her, working with her to usurp the throne, like just being the best best friend and never never letting any sort of rivalry get in the way of them just being like two women supporting each other. I think I'm also going to present this to Hot Prince Gong, who, I mean, things did not end well between the two of them, but, but he really had her back in some crucial moments, which I appreciate. And that's what this award is for. It's for so many other women we talk about in this podcast, just it feels like no one was in their corner. This is an award for people who like were there. Prince Chun, 
I don't know. And I don't know if it's because he's just less hot, but I don't, I don't see him as much. Although he was, he killed little On, And so she got past that, but I cannot. Little On also, we just don't know enough about him. I like that Sushi had various friends, though. I like, I like that she was not isolated or just that we know who her friends were. Like, even, like, among the eunuchs, she always had a favorite. Like, she was a friendly person. She was friends with her painting instructor. Like, I just like knowing the sense of that she had people to talk to because she was going through this intense life of nonstop chaos. She had these, like, emotional down points. Like, I just love knowing that there's people there for her to, like, share a laugh with. This score... We'll see how it goes, but I feel like this is going to be up there. Scandaliciousness. So we have her, like, usurping the throne. Um, we have her arresting the emperor. We have her, even just the scandaliciousness of her being, like, an educated woman who gave her point of view and she could have been killed at that point. I mean, she threw Pearl in a well. Like, just in this society she was in, to be a woman doing anything is scandalous. But for her to usurp the throne and stay in charge? Anyway, I'm giving her a 10, like full marks. Could not think of anything more scandalous she could have possibly done. Even as Wild Fox Kang was like, mm, she was having sex with all these people. It's like, you know what? Like, that's not the only way to be scandalous. Like, what could be more scandalous than like literally seizing the throne? Scheminas is a 10. Like, that's a straight up 10. She was so smart. She was so clever, so resilient. And just, I think almost too schemy, like too smart. Like, that's where like, Everyone knowing she's still alive in the world, they're all like, well, no one else could possibly ever be in charge of China while she's still in existence. And she just wanted to retire and they wouldn't let her, but she was like, so smart. So smart. All of her plans. So good. And part of her smartness was too, and that comes hand in hand with her like friendliness, was because she was friends with all the eunuchs and they gave her all the gossip and all the, so she knew what was going on so she could stop, you know, backstabbing. She could know what was going on. Like, when people are trying to assassinate her, she learned about it and she's able to get ahead of them. Like part of her scheminess was just making friends with all the right people. Significance, I think, is super a 10. Like everything I read, like that list of all the things that she did, it's like um, inventing a currency, um, making like banning foot binding, like, I don't know what, what all the things that I said, like opening China to the West, like inventing schools there like she radically altered china completely like her the significance is huge 10 like she was the leader during all of these wars and stuff like whether the significance whether you see it as good or bad the things that she did cannot argue that she was not extraordinarily significant i mean when you're in charge of a country for 47 years during these like crucial times yeah, significance. So it all comes down to the sexism in terms of how high her score is going to get. And this is something that I had asked friend of the podcast, Lana Johnson, about because I'd been thinking, I'm like, I think she's like top marks for almost everything, but I feel like the sexism is maybe not a high score because I don't know how much that got in her way. And it was sort of like she knew what the society was that she was living in and she was able to make that work for her in some ways. Like she didn't try to have herself named Empress herself. She was just like, oh, what if we just get like a little boy to be the emperor and I'll just like be behind, in charge behind the screen. Like she achieved so much in a profoundly sexist, patriarchal society. Like I can't imagine what more she could have done. Like even if she was Empress in name, I think she still, her life would have been around the same. But like, you know, people who would have gotten a higher sexism bonus is like maybe 
Pearl, who <laughs> kind of had no chance. But I don't know, like sexism did not get in her way that much. Like the only thing is maybe she wouldn't have had to retire. So maybe things wouldn't have gotten bad for those two years. I mean, like, I don't know. She, w- she was able to do a lot. She was able to like see that the sexism was going on and then use her scheminess to kind of like get around it. So, oh, I want only the best for her in this scoring. But I have to say, you know, I'm going to go with a five, just the straight up five. Like she dealt with sexism. Maybe she could have done more without it, but it didn't get in her way that much, which gives her a 35, which is, in terms of her scale, a great score. So in terms of where that makes her fall on this list, Christine of Sweden is at 33.5. Queen Min of Korea is 35.5. Madeline Zine, 35.5. Chevalier Dayon's 35.5. So Sushi is a bit lower than them, mainly because the sexism didn't get in her way as much, I would say. But certainly. So where does this put her? One, two, three, four, five. Ninth. So ninth. So she is fully there in the top 10 on the Fred again Memorial Scandalicious Scale. Well-deserved. What a wild ride. Honestly, I can't recommend this book enough. It's so good. I've summarized it. It was a challenge to summarize this as much as I had, but please know I had to leave a lot out because this podcast is not 75 hours long. But if you want to listen to something very long, it is an audiobook. Anyway, yeah. So you can keep up with me and the show on Instagram at Vulgar History Pod, where my DMs are open. You can contact me with your thoughts and feedback and suggestions of people that you think you'd like to hear about on the podcast. I'm also on TikTok at Vulgar History where you can also send me messages as well and see what I'm posting there. And I also have a website, which is vulgarhistory.com. There's a form there where you can get in touch with me. Again, I'm saying all these things to get in touch with me because like, I love hearing from you. I love hearing recently somebody named a cat Cece after having listened to the episode where we talked about Cece. And it's because the cat has such a voluminous hair. And I was just like, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. Yeah, I'm just happy to hear from you all the time. But also Instagram, that's where I post a lot of that's where a lot of the conversation about the show goes on. Um, we have a store, which is at vulgarhistory.store, where if you're shopping there for merch, you can always use promo code TITSOUT for free US shipping, TITSOUT10 for 10% off. Along with the usual merch that's always there, there are some seasonal items there. There's TITS the season and TITS out for the holidays. Those are both mugs. Um, there's Candelicious, which is a Hanukkah design and... Yeah, so if you want to support the show by getting some hilarious merch, that's where you can do that. Um, Also, so I have some lists posted on bookshop.org. So every book I've ever mentioned on this podcast, there's lists there like per season. Like there's a list for International and there's a list for Women Trapped in Towers of the books that I've mentioned. But I also have lists that are like recommended historical fiction. And then also a list of like gift giving suggestions. So if you purchase things on bookshop.org using the link that is in my show notes, then a little bit of money goes to support me in this podcast. And I appreciate that always. And then of course, there's also our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Writer. So if you become a supporter on there for as low as $1 a month. So what you get there is early ad-free access to all the episodes of this podcast. And then if you pledge at least $5 a month, then you get the access to the bonus episodes. So like I mentioned, there's the Genghis Khan episode of So This Asshole. That's where I do episodes around once a month about famous men from history, just complaining about how gross they are. Although Genghis Khan, with, I don't know, he's not the worst we've talked about for sure. 
And then also at that $5 a month level, you get around every month the Vulgar Peace Theater episodes, which is where me, Alison Epstein, and Lana Wood Johnson talk about costume dramas. The next one coming up, we did Queen Margot. And next we're going to be doing A Knight's Tale with Heath Ledger, which is, I'm excited for that. As I'm recording this episode, we haven't done that Vulgar Peace Theater yet, but I'm really excited for that conversation. And that's everything I need to say other than keep your pants on, keep your tits out. Talk to you next time. Vulgar History is hosted, written, and researched by Anne Foster and edited by Christina Lumagi. In a world saturated with glossy facades comes a podcast that's breaking barriers. This is Reppin'. It's where we do a deep dive into subjects like belonging, to mental health, to courage, and more. On Reppin', you'll meet the faces you think you know and discover their untold stories. It's real, it's intimate, and it gives you insight into the real person behind the images. In a world of pretense, Reppin' strips it all down. No filters, no facades. Learn and be empowered and find inspiration through thought-provoking stories that resonate with your journey. Every episode is an exploration into the truths and values that make us who we are. Representation, it's not just about race or gender. It's about you. Reppin ensures that every voice is heard. Every story is valued. So be seen, be heard, and be represented. Listen to Reppin wherever you get your podcasts.